You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 19th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hi, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. And a happy international talk like a pirate day today. Oh, no way. Oh, yes. Yes. September 19th. So international according to Hume. International talk like a pirate day is a holiday invented in 1995 by a couple of guys who dress up like pirates. I mean, that's, that's the truth. Uh-huh. And it just kind of caught like wildfire. It started as an inside joke between friends, and it gained exposure. And these guys have been on television shows now and stuff. So it's, uh, in a certain way, recognized as an unofficial holiday. So, avast, everyone! Can you take work off? I mean, I'm working on it. Only if you only if you sail the seven seas. No, you have to go to work dressed like a pirate, Jay. Come on. Oh, oh okay. And, and I, did, I did it all day. So what be bothering you today? <laughs> Imagine what do you know of headaches. <laughs> oh, my patients loved it. I mentioned it at a meeting today. I said, you know, today's uh, talk like a pirate day. And everyone started laughing. I said, I, I suggest we do the whole meeting talking. Everyone's talking like pirates. So somebody in the, somebody in the meeting called a woman a wench. <laughs> oh, we <laughs> lost it. We lost it. It was hilarious. And you got a lawsuit out of it too. So that's yeah. nice. Well, we have a, we have a lot of news items this week. The first news item, this was sent to us by about a dozen or so of our listeners. It obviously caught the attention of a lot of people who are familiar with our podcast. This is a very touching story of a twelve-week-old macaque who was abandoned by his mother and was on the brink of death. A macaque is a, mon- is a monkey, by the way. Monkey. And the little dying, abandoned, orphaned monkey was literally taken under the wing of a white dove who nursed him back to health. And now the monkey... The monkey stabbed him. <laughs> the monkey no, and the right. bird are the best of friends. Oh. For the moment. The, 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 uh, the stories are always attached to this... You know, undeniably adorable picture of this monkey hugging a bird, this dove. I mean, you guys have all seen it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, guys, yeah. who who did not think to themselves what would Perry's reaction? <laughs> I know. Be I, I think know. everybody wondered about that. I think he'd say and it was I, staged. I, I, or I'm pretty generated. sure that Perry's reaction would be that the monkey was luring the bird into a false sense of security <laughs> <Yep>. before <laughs> stabbing him. He's going to eat the bird, or, or snapping its neck, one or the other. Yes, yeah, or, or neck, flipping probably. its beak, yeah. giving him a beak flip. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, there was a little part of me that I, I was, you know, I would just think: Would Perry have been softened by this to any degree? No, no. Not, <laughs> it's not just too slightest. adorable. It's too. There's too much love in that monkey's eyes. <laughs> I, you know, it was such a it was such a funny coincidence. I I was I was um, going through Nidorama, just uh, doing the quick read of the site and I saw the picture on Nito Raman and of course the first thing I think is oh my god I have to email everybody and tell them this picture and then a moment later literally just a moment the little transparent little window appears on my 
on my screen that, that from, I think Steve, it was from you saying, guys, you have to look at this picture. Just a moment after I first saw it, I was like, wow, what a coincidence. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it was meant to be. What are the odds? Yeah, it was. Maybe that's Perry reincarnated and trying to make, make up for his bird it's hatred. Perry's in an innocent life. message. Yeah. I, I thought about that's that, Evan, but the monkey was 12 weeks old, so the timing doesn't work. Otherwise, that would be a very viable hypothesis. Sure. Well, 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 time doesn't really work that way when it comes to reincarnation, Steve. Oh, you have to, you have to wrap true. your mind around it a little bit better than that. Yeah, obviously you don't understand quantum physics. <laughs> obviously. Duh. Well, it is a cute picture. We'll have it up, obviously. No doubt. No doubt. The next news item is a quick follow-up to uh, guru Kevin Trudeau. He is probably, of all the people out there, he's number one on my hit list of um, completely despicable pseudoscientists. Yeah. He's a rotten bastard. He, he is. is a bad guy. Uh, he is. I mean, it's just like it's it's not it's not possible for me to overstate how much I despise this guy. Uh, he <laughs> has made you know hundreds of millions of dollars, or I think was, his net worth was estimated over a billion dollars. I think mm. at one point, uh, essentially selling medical misinformation to people. You know, at first fraudulent. Products. Then he was shut down by the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC. So then he figured out, hmm, I could just sell books that make these claims and not sell the products, and that's protected free speech. And that's where he made you know tons and tons of money. But then, uh, even then, he stepped over the line, and the F- FTC um, has been trying to do what it can to protect the public from his chicanery. Uh, in 2004, to settle a suit filed by the FTC against him, uh, Trudeau agreed not to use infomercials to sell any health products. However, there was a small carve-out for, info, for infomercial books, which is what he was doing. But he was still not allowed to make specious claims. Well, in his latest book, The Weight Loss Cure, they don't want you to know about. This guy's all about the big conspiracy. Uh, he makes the claim that you can eat all you want and still lose weight. But in the book... Uh, he outlines a rigorous diet with severe food restrictions and a daily injection of a hard-to-get drug. So the FTC said, that's a bait-and-switch. You're making a false claim. The claims you're making are not accurate to what the product is. So now they are um, take, taking contempt action um, against Trudeau for violating the prior awesome. agreement. So they filed it in the Illinois U.S. District Court. So let's hope that that goes well. Now we're at that point, which you said before in a previous episode. They should be able to sue him for every dollar that he's made on that book. I agree with that. I mean, we'll see what happens. Unfortunately, in the past, you know, the, these suits have been a mere slap on the wrist, the cost of doing business. Um, I think, you know, hmm. um, it's possible that they could, you know, take a significant more money. I think the laws are there, but they just haven't done that. I don't know why. But I certainly would like to see it. I would like to see the FTC sue Trudeau for every single dime he has made off of these endeavors. And furthermore, the, they should turn all of that money over to the Ness and the Skeptics Guide and Skeptic so that we could undo some of the damage he has done to the uh, scientific literacy of this country. I like that. I like that. You like a lot. that? Yeah. I second that emotion. <laughs> okay. That's a no brainer. That's a no brainer. I'll, I'll draft a letter to the FTC. Keep on dreaming. <laughs> yeah, dream big. Why not? Oh, I oh I can dream bigger than that. The FTC is trying to do their job. I mean, I do have to give them credit. The last yeah. few years, they really have been. But they're just. I'm proud of them. They're understaffed. They're under underfunded. Then they're underpowered. But at least they're going for the big fish. I mean, this guy yeah. is a major player. Yeah. Absolutely. The next story 
is yet another free energy claim. Here we go. Yeah, there's an endless supply of these. This one is a British scientist claims to have invented a revolutionary device that seems to create energy from nothing. God, yeah. where have we heard that far before? Well, finally. This device this claims has a 150 to 200 percent efficiency. The uh, Whenever you see a claim for um, over 100 percent Efficiency, you know, that violates the first law of thermodynamics. And the second law says that you can't even get to 100%. So efficiency has to be less than 100%. Anyone that claims they have a device that has 100% or more efficiency is lying. It's, it, or, or they are self-deceived. More likely lying. Steve, let me run with this one a little bit. I, I looked into it fairly closely. Uh, I, love, I love articles that start with this. It sounds too good to be true. Well, okay, then... Probably is. <laughs> and then, 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 they end, then they end the first sentence, not to mention the fact that it violates almost every known law of physics. <laughs> right. So what, they, you know, why, why keep on reading? But uh, as, as Steve said, some British scientists at a firm called EcoWatts are claiming that they invented a device that creates energy from nothing. Now, they call it the thermal energy cell, and it involves passing an electric current through a mixture of water potassium carbonate and a super secret liquid catalyst. I love the that's super important. secret ingredient. Yeah, that's, that's important. It's called gasoline. Yeah, so, so, what, so what they're going to do is they're, what they want to do the with secret. this, they, they said it could soon be fitted into ordinary homes having domestic heating bills. Okay, okay, so you have a device that appears to create energy from nothing. Why, first of all, why would it only have your heating bills? That's my first, that's the first thing that I'm thinking. Why you have this revolutionary, you know, don't get greedy, Bob. Physics laws of physics breaking device, and and your goal is to have your heating bills. But more <laughs> importantly, is that is that the best you can you can think to do with that? Hello, you have. I mean, doesn't a free energy device have better applications than lowering your domestic heating bills? Yeah, like like generating infinite energy. Right. <laughs> it, it reminds it reminds me of the secret. You know, the the big secret, and people you know people want to you know regrow their hair. They can essentially wish for anything and have it come true, and they're wishing for these mundane things well these guys have this device and and this is their goal and so it's uh, it's just it's it's just more craziness how big is this device it's a uh, 12 inches by two inch tube basically and even the makers are saying they're not they're at a loss to explain how it works but they, yeah, all, they the, all the red flags are there you know, yeah, so they're there. But but here's a good one this one kind of perked me up a little bit they had a skeptical scientist independent skeptical scientists they carried out their own tests and discovered that the, this 12 inch by 2 inch tube really does produce far more heat energy than the electrical energy put in now <laughs> but you got to read a little, you got to read a little more closely jim lyons from the university of of york independently evaluated this system now they don't give this guy a title it, what is this guy? Is the, he janitor? the janitor? Or what, what is, so no title. That's, Fresh, that's a, a red freshman, flag. Freshman undergrad. So I so I looked into I looked into this guy, um, and he, this guy does you know has a decent education. Uh, his formal education uh, was in technology. He holds degrees in physics and engineering, and his postgraduate work was in aeronautics. Fa- fairly impressive. But get this: he's a member of the British Society of Dowsers. Oops. There you go. He, he undertakes research into the geo and biophysics of Earth energies. His special research topic is the mechanism of dowsing based on quantum ideas in consciousness studies. So this guy, I mean, what else? What else do you need to know? Yeah, he's hardly a reliable source. So we have an impossible de- device verified by a pseudoscientist with with no real, you know, credentials. I'll buy two. They're calling it the twelve-inch miracle tube. Careful. Oh God! 
12-inch miracle tube. I've had one of those for years. It's called a fleshlight. <laughs> right. So um so a little bit a little bit more on this. So, so the key the key obviously I think is the secret catalyst. So what is the secret catalyst? It's my best guess is that it's just some sort of energy storage molecule or something that is, you know, that is breaking down and releasing energy. For example, if I if I take a lighter and I take a, and I light a book on fire, I guarantee you that the the heat that's going to be created is going to be a lot more than my contribution. Uh, from my lighter. Now, does that mean I've got some revolutionary, you know, ther- law of thermodynamics breaking device? Yeah. No, it's just that you've got you're you're burning something that has stored energy, that's stored energy mm-hmm. from the sun for for years and years, and you're just and you're just <laughs> releasing that. Yeah. So yeah, that's so all it is. So you're right, Bob. So one possibility is that they're burning some fuel, and that the secret ingredient is right. a fuel. The other and possibility is that they're just lying or or grossly incompetent. Right, um, which, now, is, which, which is I think is probably more likely, actually. Really, you think that you think they're lying instead of just uh, having some some funky um, lying slash know, incompetent. Or, I think, and then there's a secondary well, hypothesis. Are, I would say they're being deceptive or or, or perhaps self deceptive by including some fuel right. in in the mix and not not counting the energy contribution of the secret ingredient fuel. I, I acknowledge that's another possibility. Yeah, but when the well, critics point those points out, why don't they go back and recon? And and look at their data again, and come to that conclusion. They say they, that they say they're going to do that, and they fade into the woodwork. And then three months later, six months later, some other crank right. is there with some other you know free energy device. That's all. Yeah. Where, where were the, where were those guys? Those Irish guys from three months ago who right. show their device. You they, don't. Yeah, you don't. They hear about faded them into the woodwork. The, bur- the burning salt water guy from last week. We, we're never going to. You know, that's going to. I don't think we're bounce around yet, the media for a while, but that's yeah, it's around. never going to pan out. We're never going to see that in popular science. Right. So they so get funding, end, though, right? The, the goal is they get funding, right? They spend, yes. right? Well, the government, the government is uh, is seriously looking into this, and I think they've even invested some money checking this out. I mean, don't they have any any good scientists over there saying, "Wait a second, come on"? Well, I don't know. Yeah, again, I wouldn't take anything for granted, Bob. So the the most cynical interpretation of this is that this is a scheme to to lure investors, and certainly there is a market. There is an industry of people peddling free energy devices. The and the, and the scam is to just get investors. They're not promising the device. They're not selling the device. They're just selling an investment. A right. la Dennis Lee, right? So it. it's possible that that's what this is all about. It's also possible, and I guess I don't know if you had an opportunity to look into this, that these the scientists who allegedly verified it could be, you know, have a stake in this. Sometimes that's the case, and when and I wouldn't believe anything they say. They'll they'll say things like the the British government's investing in this and is very in- interested in that. That's just the sales pitch. I wouldn't believe anything that is being said unless right. it was independently verified, because the chances are are, are pr- pretty good that this is a deliberate and conscious scam, right? So it could be self-deception, it could be incompetence, it could be a scam. And if it's a scam, you can't believe anything. That's what I'm, that's what I'm leaning right. towards. Yeah. They go on in this article to talk about a woman who signed over 20,000 bucks, or 20,000 pounds yeah. uh, to her, and you know, an elderly woman who, I guess, died a couple of years later, and oh well, she's kind of out of her money now but you know they, they seem to always prey on the older folks you know that's yeah. who that's who they target and that that to me smells of a scam well i think we should end on a quote by homer simpson he said lisa in this house we respect the laws of thermodynamics <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because it's true the the next news story is a uh, very interesting one this is um an article that was published 
in um, the Wall Street Journal was discussing the research of an epidemiologist uh, by the name of John Ioannidis, uh, who has done some very interesting research. What he does is he looks at the consistency of the medical literature. In, in a seminal paper that he published a couple of years ago, he looked at highly cited uh, medical studies in prominent journals from about 20 years ago. And then he compared that to the, to the next 20 years of published research to see how many of them turned out to be true, how many of them were later refuted. Uh, and how many were still questionable. And he found out that, you know, a little bit more than half actually were refuted by later research. Uh, in other studies, he also found that um, that the effect size in, in original studies, when they are later verified, the effect size is smaller in later studies than in the original studies. Now, What's interesting about this, there's a, lot of th- there's a lot of things that are interesting about this, but one, of course, is that the, the implications of this research has been grossly abused uh, in many quarters. I did not like the Wall Street Journal article by, by Robert Lee Holtz, um, who I thought took a, a completely uh, incorrect approach to the implications of the study. And, of course, the, uh, the quacks and charlatans, anybody who has a beef with the current findings of scientific medicine, like to cite this to say, well, science, scientific medicine doesn't know what it's talking about anyway. Most of the stuff that's, that, that doctors and scientists say is wrong. What this actually does say, and if you, you, know, if you read the studies carefully and if you read the um, analysis by statisticians and epidemiologists who know what they're talking about, is that you know, he's comparing the literature to itself, the medical literature to itself. He's saying if you take individual studies and then you compare that to how the literature matures over the next 20 years, that, yeah, the initial findings are often incorrect, but, but that's, we only know that because the literature works itself out eventually. Eventually, we discover what the truth actually is. So you can't use the medical literature to say that the medical literature is wrong, right, which is that's, that was sort of the incorrect implication that was a lot of people have been generating about this. Now, it is true that it does point to some weaknesses in the literature, and these are systemic and, and significant, namely that there's a lot of low-quality studies that are being published. The, so part of the reason why so a lot of the initial studies are, are incorrect is because that there were low-powered small studies or the methodology was fairly weak. The later studies were more robust, better methods, you know, uh, more subjects. There is also a bias towards publishing positive studies. Researchers and journals like positive studies. Uh, so there's this file drawer effect that we talk about where negative studies tend to get filed away and don't get as much attention as the positive studies. Th- these are problems with the literature that have been, people have been talking about for years, and this is just part of the, uh, the research that shows the need to... to to equally publish negative studies as well as positive studies. You know, maybe we shouldn't be publishing so many low-quality studies and we should be um, you know, focusing more on doing more definitive studies, uh, etc. But that's actually a small effect compared to the, the real reason why so many initial studies are negative. One thing, for example, if you, if you assume that, and I go over this in detail in my blog from, from this week, but if you assume that 80% of new hypotheses in medicine are incorrect and 20% are correct, then with using a, um, the usual p-value of, of 0.05 or, or 5%, then that means that 25% of, of studies are going to be false positive. They're going to be falsely positive. So that's even with perfect methodology, 
perfect methodology, 25% are going to be false positive with those fairly reasonable assumptions as a starting point. So even with a little bit of weakness in the methodology, you can see how easily you can get up to 50% of initial studies are false positives. But the big thing is, I think the, the I was disappointed to see that most of the uh, the media accounts of this study missed what are the real implications of this. And I have to give credit to a uh, statistician by the name of Alex Tabarrok, uh, who wrote a really excellent summary of, of this research. And, and he correctly pointed out that, um, although he, he didn't, you know, put it in the context of complementary alternative medicine, which I did in my blog, that uh, the, these numbers all get worse if your prior probability is low. So the best way to minimize the false positive studies is to um, look at questions that have a high probability of being true from the outset, which means using our knowledge of basic science and how things work to look at, at therapies that are likely to be effective. If you're studying um, treatments which, are, which have very low prior probability uh, based upon you know, basic science, then the false positive rate goes way up. And, and he also pointed out that if you have lots of people researching a topic, by chance alone, you're going to generate lots of positive studies. So if you apply this research and this analysis to, for example, homeopathy, where you have zero prior probability and you have hundreds or hundreds and hundreds of people studying it and research papers being published, you get this background noise of false positive studies. Uh, and that's exactly what we see, you know, with the homeopathy literature. That's exactly what we see, in my opinion, with like the acupuncture literature and a lot of other things in the alternative medicine uh, realm, therapeutic touch, etc. So what, what this really shows, far from being an indictment of scientific medicine, this is an absolute indictment of complementary alternative medicine, of researching things with a low scientific probability or plausibility. Uh, let me just read really quickly his seven uh, rules of thumb for um, evaluating the literature, which are spot on. He says, in evaluating any study, try to take into account the amount of background noise. Bigger, st- bigger samples are better. Three is small effects are to be distrusted. Like all of ESP literature, right? Small effects are to be distrusted. Uh, mm. Four, multiple sources and types of evidence are desirable. Five is evaluate literatures, not individual papers. That is so critical. That's something I've been trying to emphasize a lot on this podcast. People say, what about this one study on acupuncture or chiropractic or whatever? What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. You have to put it in the context of the literature. What's the pattern that we're seeing? Number six was trust empirical papers which test other people's theories more than empirical papers which test the author's theory. So if you have a homeopath you know, publishing a paper that proves homeopathy, you know, that raises a little bit of a red flag. And as an editor or referee, don't reject papers that fail to reject the null hypothesis, meaning publish negative studies too, not just the positive ones that make good press releases. I think this this research is very important when put in the proper context, and the bottom line for me is that it is a significant indictment of uh, the alternative medicine research that is going on. One last news item we would like to lend we like to end on a lighthearted news item occasionally this is This one is about a Filipino judge who happens oh to believe in 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 elves. That's okay. <laughs> oh, God, Which is wait, right. that's okay. He's, he has the right to believe in it. He has three invisible companions. Oh wait, three? Three invisible <laughs> companions. Angel, Armand, and Louise. 
he likes the vampire connection, I guess. Well, uh, Daryl and Daryl. <laughs> My other brother, Daryl. <laughs> this is a, tr- a trial judge, trial court judge, Florentino V. Floro Jr., acknowledged that he has regularly sought the counsel of three elves only he could see. This is, you know, a bit disturbing in a sitting judge, although he tries to reassure the public that he has never sought their advice in a judicial decision. Well, that's nice. That's, that's, <laughs> that's great. I got three <laughs> words for you, take Steve. Some in that. Three words. Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait, is cuckoo hyphenated or? It doesn't matter. It's four or five words. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, that guy should be slapped so hard out of that judge's chair. <laughs> he was. <laughs> they, but, they his, should, but his elves can stay. <laughs> but his elves can stay, right? I, I, do know, I, I do know exactly what Perry would say about this. What? You're fired. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Wow. Did he lose I did, his job? I did love, this, oh, yeah. I did, I did have uh, one favorite line. One favorite quote from him in this article that I really enjoyed. He said, It shouldn't matter what I believe in, whether it's Jesus, Muhammad, or Louis Armand, an angel, he says in an interview. I just thought that was a. You could, fun I agree with that. Quote. You could take that a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll just you let that sit I there. Take it. Yeah. It doesn't matter what invisible friends you believe He had them under his desk or in his chambers? Under his robe, maybe? I don't know. Uh, They're invisible. Shoulder. They could have been. Sexy. They could have been sitting on the de- on the table. They could have been matter. levitating in the air for all we know. So, Steve, from a medical position, what do you think this guy has? Yeah, in all wrong? seriousness, you know this um, that level of delusion and that kind of um, biz- that kind of bizarreness, which is not concordant with cultural beliefs, which is actually an important bit, uh, does raise the concern that he might have a delusional disorder and, and need. Well, um, it's medical it's attention. more concordant. It's more concordant than with cultural beliefs, and in even in this country, I think, just from what I gathered from the article and what reading I did, was that it's you know beliefs like that are are somewhat common in in the Philippines, and it, it just seemed like like they have more of a belief in the supernatural than even mm-hmm. in the United States, and that that was just my impression that he was more in line with with the culture. Uh, than you might think if he was, say, you know, uh, a sitting judge in the United States. Yeah, but let me but clarify still. what I meant by that, Bob. It's okay. if if a belief system is part of an organized religion, or you know, an, a belief system that you will get from the culture like that, then that doesn't count as a as a quote unquote delusion in terms of a medical condition. But if you um, have a belief, even if I mean, you, people will still get their delusional beliefs from the culture, but they're not things that people typically believe in as being real. I mean, I don't know how many. I don't think you're going to say that Filipinos typically have invisible elf friends that they talk to, right? Right. Yeah. So it's like believing, you know, the, the old cliche of the, of the delusional person who thinks they're Napoleon Bonaparte. You know, obviously that's something that that's a bit that they got from the culture, or it's not uncommon for schizophrenics to think that the CIA is monitoring them. You know, obviously they're they're incorporating cultural elements into their delusion, but it's not an accepted belief system what they're professing. Why did this come out? Did he? Was there a reason that he admitted this? I don't know. Doesn't say. He just he he admitted it. By the way, I've been conversing with these yeah. invisible elves. Well, for so they were unclear. They uh, they actually searched um, his court, 
and uh, and I guess his office is uh, you know the area where he worked. They searched it and they uh-huh. they were they didn't give too many details, but they said that they were you know distressed by what they found. What? So apparently they found some some freaky stuff in there that really uh, got, got the ball rolling against this guy. Like cookies or shoes that were cobbled in the night or something. So he, I mean, he, he was um, the uh, the Supreme Court was not happy with him, and uh, Associate Justice Minita Chico Nazario he wrote in the uh, in the Supreme Court's verdict, which I guess removed him from his position. Lest we be misconstrued, we do not denigrate such a belief system. However, such beliefs, especially since Judge Floro acted on them, are at odds with the critical and impartial thinking required of a judge under our judicial system. You think? Hmm. Just a bit. Believing in elves is at odds with critical and impartial thinking. Well, let's move on to your questions and emails. Uh, The first email comes from Matt Beatty from Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, and he writes, I have been listening to the SGU for some time now, but this is the first time I have written to you. I am sure that you have lots of people writing in with many different stories, but I felt that regardless, you guys should know about this. Though I may sound like a naive Canadian, I didn't expect a Catholic school board in Ontario to consider banning the new HPV vaccine. I was a student in this board between 1996 and 2001 and was shocked to find this news story. There has been much contention here in Ontario about funding faith-based schools, other than Catholic schools, which is actually a stipulation of the British North American Act of 1867. That's interesting. He goes on but then says, Regardless, I just wanted to let you know that I appreciate what you guys do. It is organizations like yours that inspire people to better themselves and help those around them. Thank you, and as usual, I look forward to this week's podcast. Well, thank you, Matt. So the story he links to is about, um, as he says, a Catholic school board considering banning the new human papillomavirus vaccine. I don't think we've talked about this before. This has been a a bit of a controversy, even in in the United States, even if briefly. So the human papillomavirus has been known for a long time to be a major risk factor for cervical cancer. So women who get an infection with this virus, the, the, the acute infection or the chronic infection itself doesn't cause many symptoms, uh, but it does predispose to cervical cancer, which is a, which is a very serious uh, disease for women. Well, um, scientists have developed a vaccine against this virus, and it's been proven to dramatically decrease the risk of uh, infection with HPV and of cervical cancer. So this is a vaccine which prevents cancer. That's a pretty good thing. Now, some in, uh, in certain religious communities have had a problem with this because they say that it promotes promiscuity. Because, of course, the, papillom- the human papillomavirus is a sexually transmitted virus. This is, you know, it, it, it's an incredibly uh, harmful and, in my opinion, absurd position to take. You know, that we need the threat of cancer to be a uh, a deterrent for promiscuity. Uh, and it also carries the implication that if you get cancer, you know, if a woman gets HPV and gets cancer, that they somehow deserved it for being immoral. Um, that, is, that is certainly the implication if you're saying that we shouldn't take steps to prevent cancer from occurring. Yeah, it's a completely ridiculous argument. And I mean, it's sad that it's been going on for this long. Like, I mean, this whole thing blew up what like a year ago or yeah. so right yeah in, in this country um, and i i blogged about it back when it first uh yeah. started and i i said something about how um it, it's it's the equivalent of saying you know 
nobody should have any fire extinguishers because it'll just encourage people to set fires. Right. It, it makes no sense. You know, it's preventative. Just do it. it, it you know, it, it's one of those things that really makes me angry because it's just so destructive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, you know, the, um, some in the religious community have been a little conflicted about this because they certainly don't want to miss an opportunity to moralize. And yet, the other side, then it puts them in a position where they're being anti-medicine, and you know it's like they're they're against a a, um, a vaccine that can prevent cancer in women. I mean, it, it's uh, it's a very very difficult because it's absurd, you know, position for them to take. I'm actually in the in the middle of reading Christopher Hitchens' book, uh, God is Not Great, which is an excellent read, by the way. And he actually is much more tolerant in that book than I thought he was going to be based upon the hype surrounding the book and, of course, the title, in my opinion. But he also, at the same time, doesn't pull any punches in terms of calling religion-based claims for what they are. And he, of course, correctly points out this very – he uses this very example as an example of, you know, being – adhering to an ideological belief, you know, setting you up to take a a position which is, you know, anti-health and, in this case, anti-woman. The next email comes from Matthew Robertson, also from Canada, Vancouver, British Columbia. And Matthew writes, I am a longtime fan of the show. The reason I am writing is this. I recently caught an episode of Oprah on which Jenny McCarthy was a guest. It turns out that she has a new book, Louder Than Words, A Mother's Journey in Healing Autism. It's the story of her little boy, Evan, and the struggles she faced following his autism diagnosis. A large portion of the book explains the alternative approaches she utilizes in order to treat her son's condition. It was supremely entertaining to try to explain the logical fallacy she employed while discussing the efficacy of these alternative approaches. The highlight for me, aside from her constantly quoting her mommy instinct as her major source of evidence for anything and everything, was when she explained that the only reason the pediatricians aren't utilizing these alternative approaches is they are simply unaware of them. Up until a certain point, it was all fun and games, innocent entertainment while Jenny and Oprah discussed alternative medicine while making reference to The Secret. That's a reference, by the way, to that that ridiculous book we discussed on a previous episode. But then a line was crossed. Oprah asked Jenny what she felt was responsible for her son's condition, and dum-diddy-dum, of course she felt it was the MMR vaccination her son had received around his first birthday. Um, he goes on to describe the show, but that that is the essence of uh, of his email. So he's just asking what we think about all of this, of course. You know, Jenny McCarthy, she's the person who got famous eating her own boogers on MTV, right? Just so we're clear on who we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's the same uh, Jenny, right? Yeah, Jenny that's McCarthy. McCarthy. Yeah. That's what turned me on to her, yep. yep. And, and now she's influencing millions of drones on Oprah. That's great. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, you're not. She's an unlikely candidate for uh, for this type of wisdom. You know what I mean? Like she's gonna she's gonna help the world. I, I've read a lot about this particular topic. We we've been all passing a lot of emails and links and everything. And um, I think really the the baseline of it is she's making excuses, trying to convince herself that her son is more normal than he is, and she's incredibly full of herself. Mm-hmm. That was my take on the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, the uh, you know read the transcript, and um, which we got which we could link to because it's on the Oprah site. It it is very disturbing. So you know you have two people, Oprah and Jenny McCarthy, neither of whom 
understand this issue, in my opinion, neither of, whom, neither of whom understand the science behind it, or nor are they in a position to really judge the science behind this issue. They are telling a, a very emotional, very compelling story, and in such a way that they are going to be um, convincing m- many, perhaps millions of viewers of something which is utterly wrong that there is any reason to be concerned about the MMR vaccine and and a possible link to autism. There isn't. That could very well and probably will lead to people not vaccinating their children. So there is a, a, a certain amount of morbidity attached to this. Oprah has more responsibility than this. She should have consulted an expert. Now, she did try to introduced, you know, to her credit, got to give credit where it's due, a statement from the CDC, but I don't know where she got this from, but she chose a particularly wishy-washy statement from the CDC saying... Yeah, here's part of that quote she pulls, she claims from the the, uh, CDC, uh, that they state, we simply do not know what causes most cases of autism, but we're doing everything we can to find out. The vast majority of science to date does not support an association between... uh, Thimerosal. Am I pronouncing that right? Thimerosal. Yeah. Which, which between, by the way, between thimerosal it, and which, by the way, is not autism. in the MMR vaccine and is not what the issue in terms of what uh, Jenny McCarthy is saying. But we are currently conducting additional studies to defer, to determine what role, if any, uh, the preservative has in the vaccines and the development of autism. So yeah, kind of wishy-washy. Uh, and of course, it's also it's token skepticism, like as an aside, in the midst of an, a very in the midst of a very emotional story where Oprah characterized hers as mother warriors, and you know what she's saying again, multiple references to her mommy instinct, and another celebrity uh, mother of autism, Holly Pete, says that. Um, the CDC statement about vaccinations has given her hope that parents and medical professionals could lay down their arms and open the lines of communication. And then in quotes, I would just say to the pediatricians, listen to mothers sometimes and give us a little bit more respect. Our gut is really dead on. I'm sorry, Holly, but your gut does not trump a ton of science. It just doesn't. And if, you know, this is the same tact that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. took when he wrote that article about attacking mothers, as if by defending the science, we are somehow attacking or disrespecting mothers who have come to a very different opinion based upon their emotions. And and I acknowledge, I have nothing but sympathy for the parents of autistic children, I really do. And I completely understand how devastating it must be. But in their you know, emotional turmoil and devastation. They, you know, may not be making the most rational of judgments about this. And they should they shouldn't be dictating policy. They shouldn't be representing, you know, what the what the bottom line is to the public. That, you know, this is again, this is an emotional, error ridden, you know, nonsensical plea overshadowing really solid science in this area. I wonder I wonder how much of the problem is uh, or how much the problem is exasperated by doctors who just sort of dismiss them out of hand without taking the time to talk to parents and spend a lot of time with them. Because um, I feel like that's one way that the, um, the, the pseudoscientists really excel in uh, spending a lot of time with their quote unquote patients and mm-hmm. basically validating everything they say. And making them feel like they're being listened to while a lot of doctors don't have that time or they just don't have that kind of uh, manner 
mm-hmm. connecting with patients. Well, uh, what do you what do you think about that? Steve, well, from a, a I have a very um, specific thoughts about that. Certainly, there's a wide spectrum of. Uh, of personality and behavior and bedside manner among physicians. There there are some bad physicians or some who may be very good medically but are not good with patients. But that's not most physicians, and it certainly isn't most pediatricians. I mean, I don't know any pediatrician that I would characterize as you know not wanting to spend time with parents and not having a good bedside manner. That the the people with the best bedside manner go into pediatrics in my experience that's that's the conventional wisdom and and ha- they they know that they're 80% treating the parents you know that's what they do i mean they, they that's yeah. that's what it means to be a pediatrician uh, what i find is that people who go into the interaction patients with an ideological axe to grind are going to often have a negative interaction with the physician. And even when the phys- and I've had this my personal experience myself, I could spend a lot of time with a patient, with infinite patients, explain things in, in incredible detail. And But if that patient has an ideological disagreement with me, it doesn't make any difference. Now, the, the kind of stories that Jenny uh, McCarthy is telling about her interactions with the medical um, uh, her, her pediatricians and, and the medical community, I don't believe a word of it. I think it's all tainted by her clearly extreme uh, beliefs in this matter. I, and I'm sure that the stories got more and more horrific in the retelling over the years. She also, I mean, she says things which you just know are BS. Like, for example, that her her child was perfect until the day he got his MMR vaccine, and then she saw the soul go out of his eyes. Yeah. That, that's how she remembers it in retrospect. He was perfect, right. he got the vaccine, and then he utterly changed. And many, many parents who believe their kids have autism tell that same story. I don't believe a word of it because whenever, whenever we can compare those stories to documentation, like videos of children which, hey, lots of parents videotape their children these days, so we can, you can actually do this study. Guess what? There was no change around the time of their vaccine. Yeah, they but had, videos can't show the souls leaving their bodies. Come oh. on. That yeah. would yeah, be pretty cool, though. mother's love can detect. They have signs of autism going back before they were ever vaccinated. They were there the whole time. Yeah, you're a cold doctor, Steve. You're not a mother. Your motherly instincts aren't, yeah. aren't Wait, so, guiding you. So, Steve, you. you do think that it's a complete myth that doctors in general aren't uh, less, uh, don't, don't spend less time with their patients, uh, invest less time in their patients than um, the pseudoscientists. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Um, I, I actually agree that that is the case. That's because the uh, most, you know, uh, pseudoscientific practitioners, they're, they're, not, they're not tied to practicing actual scientific medicine. Right. And, and their, right. their practices actually evolved to have the optimal um, interaction with the patient, right? It's all service uh, oriented, right? Right. So I mean, that, obviously, obviously, I'm not defending them as any. No, I know. I'm not, I wasn't. I didn't mean to contradict that point. And isn't that ethically questionable? Isn't what ethically what? questionable? I mean, getting so close to these these pseudoscience doctors, quote unquote, getting so close to their patients and developing these deep, deep ties with them, they become. It takes on something different. It becomes a personal relationship, and to me, that smacks of not being ethical. It's possible that some practitioners may cross the line, but I don't think that's the core problem. I think it, the, the problem is that they tell patients not what's true, but what they want to hear, because because they're not fettered by the truth. They can say that their message has has developed to be 
to be mo- um, what patients really want to hear. Your problem's very simple. Here's the answer. The answer is very touchy-feely, very non-invasive. You're going to enjoy it, and it will cure all your problems. That's what patients want to hear. That's what they get told, by and large, by pseudoscientific practitioners. Physicians, you know, we have a burden of telling patients all the side effects of things, all the risks and benefits, all the ups and downs. You know, we have to give informed consent, you know, based upon actual scientific evidence. And right. and often the, the, the modalities that we have at our disposal are unpleasant or invasive, you know, but we... we when the evidence supports using those modalities, that's that's scientific technological medicine. So absolutely, you know, uh, quack medicine tends to be much more touchy-feely, and they do tend to spend much more time with patients. But that's a different question of whether or not, you know, within the context of a, a scientific, you know, medical uh, encounter, you know, I think that, you know, most physicians I know personally, and certainly pediatricians as as a specialty, do spend time talking with patients, talking with parents, ha- have a very you know good interaction with them. That that's I think you know more typical. Yeah. But it's easy just to say, oh, the doctor did. They dismissed me. They were they were curt with me. They, yeah, well, the nurse just grabbed him and injected her injected yeah. everyone with the vaccine even over my protests. I just don't buy any of it. Just none yeah, of it rings true. Here's McCarthy's quote. Quote, right before his MMR shot, I said to the doctor, I have a very bad feeling about this shot. This is the autism shot, isn't it? And he said, no, that's ridiculous. It's a mother's desperate attempt to blame something. And he swore at me, and then the nurse gave Evan the shot. And I remember going on, oh, God, I hope he's all right. She yeah. had a predisposition right. going going into that. She had already made up her mind even before yeah. the symptoms of, of the autism. Uh, sprung up, she she was a she was a, a believer that uh, she she was one of the masses who yeah. believes that the vaccine and, and, and even if she, even if it. if she became a believer later on, you know we know um, from research and from you know, many other areas that people's memories of events inc- morph incredibly. They they tend to alter to to emphasize and maximize the moral lesson of and the theme of the story. The facts, the details, are completely malleable. That's what we see in these kinds of stories. We see, we're, we're seeing a, a script to a movie, you know, not an accurate account of yeah. something that and, actually happened. And Oprah is the queen of this feel-good bullshit yes. that she loves so much, and she loves oh. to, to to just keep it going. It's right. like the, the feel-good train. That's what her show is. It's all Yeah, the feel-good train. In this case, I believe she caused harm to the health of the American public. In fact, just today I saw a study where the rubella vaccine, that's the R part of the MMRs, the rubella part, has been shown to reduce the incidence of blindness later in life. So now there are going to be people who are going to be blind later in life because they didn't take the MMR vaccine because of what they saw on Oprah. Did your motherly instinct tell you that, Steve? <laughs> it's my skeptical instinct. So you just read a bunch science. of data. Anyone can come up with data. Going to change the world. <laughs> look, at, look at this, Steve. When I did a search on this and I just came across the first blog that came up on Google. So the first blog came up. I don't even want to mention the name of the blog. It's kind of embarrassing. But just read this. Here's, here's what she had to say about it. Yesterday, So Jenny McCarthy's little boy Evan has, has been made autistic by a vaccine, a terrible tragedy and no surprise. Although I cannot give medical advice, I can say that a mountain range of science has shown that vaccines are both harmful and ineffective for both people and animals. There are no safe vaccines. Vaccines are unnecessary. Vaccines are a lie for profit. Right. That's, oh. that's obviously a hardcore anti-vaccination propaganda piece. I mean, that's what that is. The first one that comes up on Google. 
We have no interview this week, so we're going to do a Name That Logical Fallacy. This one was submitted by Scott G. from Richmond, Virginia, and he writes, In his book, The Universe in a Nutshell, Stephen Hawking makes a fallacious argument against those who believe that UFOs are really time travelers from the future that the government is aware of but is covering up. He says this isn't very likely since the government isn't very good at covering up conspiracies. The trouble is... We have no idea how good the government is at covering up conspiracies since we only know about the failures. What fallacy has one of the brightest scientific minds committed here? You guys are awesome. All of your time, energy, and hard work is greatly appreciated by this loyal listener. That is obviously the toupee fallacy. Yes, that is the toupee fallacy. Why don't you tell us what that is, Rebecca? Then not, yeah. by, the by the way, not fall- the bit about us being great. That was, that was not a fallacy. Oh, well, ah. no, that's absolutely correct. Um, the toupee fallacy, also known as the fake boob fallacy, yes. is saying something along the lines of toupees always look fake. I, I, can, I can always recognize a fake toupee. I can always recognize a fake toupee. Right. The, but you don't know that because the ones you don't recognize, you don't recognize, so you can't say that you recognize them. Yeah, or not. you don't know that you don't recognize them. Right? As right. opposed to real toupees? What are you talking about? Yeah, you know. straight. Shut up. <laughs> Nobody asked you, Jay. Or like Jay, you're saying, you know, I can always tell fake boobs just by looking at them. So right, you, you which can is pretty much all the opportunities had to interact <laughs> with fake boobs in his life. <clears throat> so it's 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 incomplete data set. You're you're the the data set is biased systematically, and it's systematically biased in the um by, by completely eliminating the false negatives, right? So the false right. negatives being that you don't you think it's real, but in, in but you, in actuality, it's it's a toupee or it's fake. So you would need to then do the follow up you know, to say, all right, I'm going to look at a hundred guys, decide who has a toupee and who has real, and then find out, compare that to a gold standard. You know, find out by asking them or investigating them: is was this real? Was this a toupee? If you don't do that follow up, then you, you can't rely upon the uh, the conclusion. And listeners should note that performing such a study on the street could get you punched. Not whether you're doing toupees or fake. Boobs. Yeah, I say that not nearly as dangerous <laughs> as doing that study with the fake boobs. That right. would be that would be more risky. But this is not exactly. But if like you do, that. you should wear one of those T-shirts that says FBI female body investigator because those are always classy and will not get you slapped. Oh, cool. I thought it was federal <laughs> breast Proceed. inspector. Whatever. Get it right, Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't have the T-shirt hanging in my closet like you do, so I can't really if you, reference If you want to be mostly correct, if a woman's breasts look too big, they're probably fake. There it is. That's what we call a heuristic, a down-and-dirty rule of thumb that's uh-huh. right most of the time. <laughs> I like that. Down-and-dirty indeed. Down-and-dirty indeed. Okay, but... It's getting back to this. I, I think that this is that Hawking statement is not exactly the toupee fallacy. There's a there's another element to this because what he really could be saying is that um, a conspiracy, a big conspiracy that the government is covering up, is not plausible. It could be making a plausibility argument here, and we do have some data. We have data because we have you know a couple hundred years of history, you know, of the American government to say well in, uh, historically. Has the government ever um, had a cover-up or a conspiracy that was then later revealed when, by historians or when it was no longer immediately relevant or the principal people involved 
were no longer in power or had died? And the answer is no. I mean, there really isn't any massive cover-up or conspiracy that was then later revealed by history. And we have lots of good reasons to think that such a, cons- that such a, a huge cover-up or conspiracy is inherently implausible and that our government does not operate with the efficiency and the seamlessness, especially from administration to administration, to pull something like that off. So while there's a little bit of the toupee fallacy in there, there's other things, I think, which are perfectly legitimate. And now, Randy Speaks. Randy, I remember you telling a story one time about an encounter you had with Barbara Walters regarding your friend and mine, Yuri Geller. Can you tell us about that? First of all, let's pronounce his name properly, uh, Steve. That's uh, Uri Geller. Remember, you can't blame the Russians for this. It's not Yuri. It's Uri. You've got to be very careful about that because uh, I think the Russians may resent that. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I've had many adventures with um, Barbara Walters over the years, uh, many of them on the Today Show, some on a couple of the women's shows that she's done, and most recently on The View. And uh, we've always gotten along so well together. Barbara always throws her arms out and rushes down the hall to, to embrace me. She's very effusive and... Um, uh, lovely, very affectionate lady, and uh, I'm very fond of her. But uh, there are a couple of things we we just don't discuss in detail. I don't know that she ever really fell for the Uri Geller stunts. Uh, she was amazed by them. Well, listen, the guy's a magician, and if you don't understand how it's done, I guess you can be amazed by it. Uh, as, as with most celebrities, she finds it difficult to believe that she can't understand something, and that if she doesn't understand it, it is probably supernatural or probably genuine, but she's very willing to be shown, and that's a, that's always a good sign with a with a media figure, I think, or a celebrity of any kind. But uh, she, when I when I replicated uh, the um, the sealed drawing thing, the thing in the envelope that he does, it's one of the three tricks that Geller does. He is a three trick pony, you know, and uh, that's one of his major tricks. When I replicated that for her on the uh, not for women only, I think was the name of the show. And uh, we used to be called for women only, and then they got politically correct and called it not for women only. Duh. She was really, she was flabbergasted because she literally uh, threw her pen, pencil up in the air and just slumped in the chair uh, as if to say, oh boy, I've been taken again. Uh, now, I did that by an, an ad lib uh, method, which was quite different from what uh, Geller has always done. But nonetheless, it works as tolerably well as you can imagine. And uh, she, after the show, when I showed her how it was done, she was astonished that she had fallen for it. Uh, and I sort of was too. <laughs> but the audience apparently fell for it too because it fooled the audience at home and in the studio. So I guess it wasn't all that bad. But I must say, Barbara is very practical and pragmatic. She recognizes that she can be fooled. And that is such a healthy sign and so very rare uh, among celebrities. And uh, Barbara's been around long enough that she has enormous standing, of course, just enormous standing uh, with her public and with her fans. Uh, And I think rightly so, because she's a very intelligent woman and she does very, very well uh, for herself. And she certainly uh, represents the uh, the emergence of... uh, 
of uh, women as, as very, um, and this has only happened in the past 20 years, as very potent people in the in the news business and um, as uh, leaders in TV and uh, in uh, communication culture. So I like her a lot and uh, look forward to seeing her again. But I wouldn't say she fell for Geller. She was just fooled by the regular Geller tricks, but she was easily shown uh, that uh, she doesn't necessarily understand how tricks are done and she shouldn't expect that she should understand how tricks are done. People are fooled by tricks when they're well done. And when you only do three tricks, as Geller does, you get pretty good at doing them. Randy, after your demonstration to Barbara Walters, did she accept explicitly that Geller's performance could have been attributed to tricks, or did he, she still hold out that he might have some real paranormal ability? No, I, th- I think. Uh, I don't know that we that I tried to extract an answer from her. As a matter of fact, you know, a gentleman wouldn't do that in that case. Uh, just let her think about it. But I think if you were to ask Barbara now, she'd uh, say that she recognizes that certainly that she could have been fooled and that that was probably the way that uh, Geller did what he did. Randy, thank you very much. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two are real and one is fake. And then my panel of skeptics has to guess which one is the fake. Toupee. Is everyone ready for this week? Absolutely. Ready. Hit, okay. hit it. I'm right. you. I think Go this ahead, is going Steve. to be an interesting one. Number one. Study shows that carbon nanotubes can be used to heal bone fractures seven to eight times faster than natural healing and result in a 60% increase in bone strength. Item number two, new research finds that neutrons, while they contain a net neutral electrical charge, actually are comprised of layers of positive and negative charge. And item number three, a new study shows that heterosexual men and women who are in a committed relationship equally will pay more attention to attractive people of the same sex than of the opposite sex. Evan, go first. Carbon nanotubes, here we go again. I'm not surprised, though. I, I do think this is pretty amazing science, and I would not be at all surprised if it does heal bone fractures seven to eight times faster. So I'll think uh, that one is science. The other one is that uh, neutrons contain a net neutral electrical charge comprised of layers of positive and negative charge. God, I just don't know about that. A study shows that heterosexual men and women who are committed in relationship equally will pay more attention to people of the same sex than of the opposite sex. Well, number three, I'm sorry, the uh, the heterosexual men and women question to me seems, I guess, the least plausible, so I'll have to say that that one's fiction. Okay. Jay? You know, I, I can't I can't disagree with Evan. I you know, when reviewing these uh that one that that last one uh let, let's just restate it. Let me, let me say it again and maybe it'll make more sense if I say it out loud again. A new study shows that heterosexual men and women who are in a committed relationship equally will pay more attention to attractive people of the same sex than that of the opposite sex. Now that I say it again, that sounds like complete and total bullshit. <laughs> Steve, what do you think? We're idiots? 
Oh, yeah. Now that I'm in a committed relationship and I have to have sex with the same person for the rest of my life, I'm going to pay attention to the sex that I'm not attracted to. Get a, get a life. So you're saying that one's <laughs> fake? Yeah. <laughs> that one's the toupee. Right, just checking. Nice try, Steve. All right, Rebecca? Well, I'll just say that he says pay more attention to them, not more sexual attention necessarily. It could be guys sizing up other good-looking guys to make sure they're not stealing their wife. You know? Nope. Nope. Okay, I'm saying it's bullshit, too. <laughs> okay. Nice. <laughs> All right, Bob. Here we go. Crap. These are, Everybody, hold these on. Are wait, wait, wait. wait yeah. Revel in it. Everybody revel in it. Ready? Okay, go. here we go. All right. Everyone ready? Everyone settled <laughs> in? Comfortable? Okay, Bob, go. Settled. <laughs> wait, I need to go get a coffee. Okay, I'll be right back. Go ahead. Oh, well, Bob will still be going. Go around the corner, Rebecca. Go to Starbucks. Starbucks. It's across the street. Poor Bob. Bob, you go on. Don't wait. You assholes done. We just got started. All right. I don't like any of this crap. <laughs> All three of these are bullshit. <laughs> and I wish I had a three-sided coin. All right, the first one, carbon nanotubes. Do. All right, carbon nanotubes, they do everything, right? They're they're incredible. They what can what can't they do? But for healing bone fractures seven times faster, that's great. I can't imagine how that would be, but you don't want also you don't want a 60% stronger bone. Your bones are Says you know, your you. bones. The, no, the strength of your bones are are important in relation to other bones. If you had one bone that was really hard and you and you had an accident, I'd it, have it a could cause. Bone. No, it would cause. Yeah, I like to see that one. Hmm. Um, it would cause da- collateral damage to all to all the other bones. I mean, it wouldn't be good to have one bone that was sixty percent stronger than uh, than it, than it should. But that be. doesn't so that I, doesn't make I it that like doesn't that. make it wrong. Bob, where do you pull this information from? Like, I just blows my mind that you have that information in your head. Well, number two, <laughs> this one, this one's complete crap. Whoa! So, so does that mean I should pick it or not? I have no idea. Bob, neutrons. <laughs> He's giving a little angry. layers, layers of positive <laughs> and negative charge. What kind of crap is it that? Sound is like crap. crap. I think that's the curveball. Oh, come on, it's crap. I mean, they're, they're made up of. Of quarks. What the hell? Yeah. How are you going to have layers of positive and negative charge that's what I'm talking in a neutron that's a, um, that's a triplet of quarks? I know, Bob. I, Doesn't I that totally know. piss you off? Oh, Christ. But I, but I can't pick that. Of course. Because it's too obvious. Right. So then you're left so, with number three, Bob. And there you go. So all, <laughs> everybody pick three, huh? Oh, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> At this one, I could, I could almost kind of see much more than two and one. That's why it's wrong. <laughs> but yeah, but he, maybe he was wanting me to think that. <laughs> Bob. Oh man, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna go with, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with the team. Yeah. Just go with three because, holy crap! Okay, so we have a unanimous but vote. This like man. Buffalo oh, running off a cliff. <laughs> lemmings, whatever. Lemmings. Um, okay, so actually, you know that's a myth. The lemmings. Thing. Let's really? take these yes, in order, is. shall She's we? Right. <laughs> All right. Let's let's take them in order, Jason. She wants to take them in order. We'll do, right, that. Let's do that. Let's do it. Item number one. Study shows that carbon nanotubes can't be used. <laughs> <laughs> what? Do it. Give me a second. <laughs> 
okay, what does it mean that he's laughing so much? What does it mean? <laughs> I'm thinking of your response, Bob. It's just funny. Um, <clears throat> okay. Study shows that carbon nanotubes can... <laughs> <laughs> Can't get by carbon nanotubes. <laughs> <laughs> can, can I just say there's no other podcast on the planet where carbon nanotubes would cause so much giggling, oh, so much schoolgirl giggling. Oh shit! <laughs> we love you, Bob. <laughs> oh, all right. Rebecca, Rebecca goes. He's actually getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Can be used to heal bone fractures <laughs> seven to eight times faster than natural healing and results in 60% increase in bone strength. You guys all think that one is science, and that one is, yes. in fact, fiction. Oh, blast. That is fiction. Oh, oh. Bitch. That hurts so bad. Two wow, is science. That. This one does back out. Hang on. Relax. Take it easy. <sighs> <sighs> so this one is based on a real article. That doesn't. I read that article. That's why I was pretty sure. That, that <laughs> well, does okay, involve it does involve bone and carbon nanotubes. But what they did was they embedded it into a anodized titanium, and what they found is that calcium deposits formed quicker with the uh, carbon nanotubes. So this wasn't healing a fracture. What the what the implication is that with implants, like a a knee replacement or a hip replacement, that it will sort of solidify in quicker with the carbon nanotubes yep. than with just the anodized titanium. But there was no fracture healing or anything. So it, it, it and it may be true that in the future you know we'll be seeing these carbon nanotubes nanotubes used more and more in medicine and maybe even in bone healing. But that wasn't the current study. Item number two: New research finds that neutrons, while they contain a net neutral electrical charge hence the name neutrons, actually are comprised of layers of positive and negative charge. And this That's one is awesome. science. And this was awesome. very surprising wow. to me. Me too. The title of this paper is Research Overturns Accepted Notion of Neutrons Electrical Properties. Now, this is something I didn't know. And that, um, in, in fact, uh, since the 1940s, it was known, actually, in 1947, Enrico Fermi, from his studies came up with the notion that there were two layers of electrical charge in the neutron, that it had a, an inner core and an outer edge. So Fermi believed that a neutron had a positive charge at the core and then a negative charge on the outside, which I didn't know. I didn't, yeah, what the hell is that about? Wow. But now more precise measurements have found that the neutron has a negative charge at its inner core and outer edge and a positive charge sandwiched in between. So there's actually three layers, negative, positive, negative. Wow. And, of course, the net charge is zero. Like an Oreo. But what yeah. forms that layer? What, 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 is, what kind of layer is this? I don't know, and you know, I don't think I know enough physics to understand it. And the, the sources that I'm reading just say that this has implications for our understanding of, of the neutron and how it interacts and but didn't go into the kind of de- into details, which I probably wouldn't understand them in any case. Um, so that's an interesting little little factoid about the neutron. The third one, new study shows that heterosexual men and women who are in a committed relationship equally will pay more attention to attractive people of the same sex than the opposite sex. I was very surprised by this. I was surprised by two things: one, that it that this is in fact true that you know that men and women pay more attention to the same sex than the opposite sex. And, and I was also surprised that it was the same for men and women. But I guess in retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised by that. This, the name of the study is Can't Take My Eyes Off You. This is a 
study that was performed at um, Florida State University by John Maynard, an associate, an assistant professor of psychology, and he looked at both singles and uh, people who are in a committed relationship and observed how they pay attention to attractive people of either sex. And he found, just what I said, that that uh, people will pay more attention, if they're in a committed relationship, they pay more attention in terms of how quickly they, their attention is drawn and how long their attention lingers on an attractive person of the same sex. Now, the thinking is, just as Rebecca said, so Rebecca actually had the right bit of information but didn't run with it, that it Damn is because me. they are sizing up their competition. If you're single, then you're looking for a mate. Then you're all about the opposite sex. Once you're in a relationship, you, have, you're, you are interested in sizing up potential competition. And, and that actually takes more of our attention than looking at the opposite sex. Mm. I'm smarter than I think. That's right. If you just had the <laughs> no, you just think, yeah, to go with that. You only got I science think, or fiction, right? <laughs> I think I get partial credit for that. Yeah, in your own mind, right? Sure. That's partial credit matters. meaning wrong. So cool. Well, it's been, it's been a while. It's been a while since I got all of you guys. You guys, doing, it, you guys have been doing quite well. If I remember correctly, well. Steve, that's the first time that you did the reveal on the first one. Well, yeah, I, I was thinking about it, and then Probably. you suggested it, so I went with it. Yeah. I'm trying to mix it up. I'm trying to mix the reveal up. I don't think it's the first time, Jay. I think I did that once before. Okay. But, uh, yeah, these are, you know, you just never know what news stories you're going to happen upon. You know, I can't make up the real ones. So it's great when I find interesting ones like that. Hmm. So, Evan, this brings us to our skeptical puzzle of the week. Yes, last so week's. What last week's puzzle was... Last week's puzzle was as follows. It was a logic puzzle. And each, uh, each of these sets of numbers represent an object. So here they are. 446, 8612, 6812, 202030, 122030. And I asked the listeners to identify each object by name. So, right there... I gave away that it was an ob- objects that I was looking for, and of course there were five sets of numbers, each with three, each, each set with uh, three numbers in the set. And uh, the answer is um, they are the five perfect solids. Um, mm-hmm. In order are the tetrahedron, the cube, the octahedron, dodecahedron, and icosahedron. Right. So those are the, the perfect solids with four, four, six, eight, twelve, and twenty sides. Which are the middle numbers in the way, in the way you had the numbers laid out in your puzzle? Yes, and the, the skeptical angle to this is that Plato first hypothesized that there were that there were five perfect solids, the first four of which uh, represent the the elements: fire, air, earth, and water, and that the fifth solid represented the universe itself. And there was some kind of uh, almost mysticism to be found in unraveling the secrets of the universe through these five solids. And, right, well, uh, his, his fifth mi- myth- mystical solid was the dodecahedron. Right. And yep, so that's, very interesting. That, that's the skeptical takes for it. Now, somebody suggested on the message board that they were, these represented the dice you roll playing Dungeons & Dragons or some other such game. But that's, that's not... That, that's that, It is true to extent, but they forgot the ten-sided, which is not a perfect solid, which is right. one of the dies that you could roll, so that was the incorrect answer. So, don't assume we're just a bunch of geeks. Right. Even though we are. <laughs> and who was Remi- the winner, Evan? Uh, yeah, the, the winner was uh, OPCN. I think he's won before a few times. Um, so, congratulations. And what's this week's puzzle? This week's puzzle is as follows. A scientist worth $10.64 believed he discovered it. 
and he claimed it was faster than Hermes. But despite Poseidon's discovery, it could not be found the same way. In the end, a scientist worth a dollar twenty-three proved the first scientist was wrong. What was it? Very so, interesting. Yep. Delve into that for a while, and good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. Jay, do you have a quote for us? I have a quote. It's for everybody. This quote is from Isaac Newton, who most of us know who he is, but in brief, he was an English physicist, a mathematician, an astronomer, a natural philosopher, and an alchemist. Uh, Lived 1643 to 1727. This guy accomplished quite a few things in his life. Here's the quote. It's very interesting. He says, I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to have been only a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself and now and then finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Isaac Newton. Thank you, Jay. I like that quote because... It doesn't necessarily speak about skepticism or science, but it's more about him recognizing his place in the world or, or, you know, imagining himself in the world. I thought it was interesting to see him talk yeah, about something it, like that. It's a good image. It's it's he's he stands humble before the wonders of the universe, and he's just trying to investigate it with with in in the way that he can. That's it's a good image. I like it. As usual, we we ask all of our listeners, if you enjoy this episode, uh, please dig it. Vote for it on dig.com. We'll have the link on our website. That helps us spread the word by increasing our visibility. And while you're exploring our resources on the web, you can also visit the SGU Fans site run by Mike LaSalle. And I'll also take this time to say that we are in the midst of upgrading uh, all of our the NES and the and the Skeptics Guide website complex. So look for upgrades and changes in the future. We'll be talking about them uh, as they're done. Yeah, exciting stuff coming. Yeah, yep. But but we're not going to reveal any secrets now. <laughs> <laughs> so th- thank you again, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Steve, you, you did a good job. You're welcome. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks, guys. Thank About you. Time. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> for once, right? And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. Please send us your questions, suggestions, and other feedback. You can use the Contact Us page on our website, or you can send us an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. Theorem is produced by Kinetto and is used with permission. They include problems, proof, endless delays.